Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. This is Isaac. And today we are joined by IRL friend of the pod, Charlotte Donlin. Charlotte, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I am a writer and a certified spiritual director. I also have been married for 23 years and have an 18-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son. So I spend time with those people. And I have a couple of podcasts, one on loneliness and belonging, and one where I talk about art and faith from a standpoint that's not too intellectual and press, not too intellectual, I'll just use that word, in ways that kind of blur the gates and fences and invite others into those sorts of conversations. Yeah, I love that because uh, we, we both uh, are in art and faith spaces occasionally, and it can be a little... A little prissy, let's call it that. Insufferable. Yeah, a little fancy. Yeah. Fancy, yes. And it's interesting how much we could talk about if we think about art and faith or art and doubt, art and mystery, that's not just kind of the heady plastics. Yeah, like how much Flannery O'Connor do you really need to read, you know? Right. Like there are other books. Oh, man. I mean, Terrence Malick is the only director who's ever had something to say about Christianity in the entire history of film. I think I've been on record about my Terrence Malick. It's just, I, I'm, I'm willing to be the unintellectual one. Uh, I, I don't get it. I think the tree of life is boring. There it is. Hot take. Cancel me. I don't care. I just don't get it. I don't well, know. I've never covered. seen it. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen it. I don't know if we've covered this on the pod, but I don't watch movies. Like I see like two movies a year. Same. I don't watch movies. I watch a few TV shows. Okay, so have y'all ever watched The Only Way is Essex? It's like a reality show based in Essex and it's got all of these characters and it's supposedly a reality show, but they do things to entertain the audience. So they make stuff up also and you never know what's made up and what's real. And it has about 35 seasons, maybe not that many. And it's hilarious and wonderful, but it's a very small group of people. Like I've only found like two people who watch it. It's because it sounds exactly like posting. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to go on the show or watch the show because you're just doing your own version of that every time you tweet. There it is. Yeah, that that could be it. (laughs) So I watched that. I watched Gilmore Girls. I watched all of that when I had COVID. My son started watching Gilmore Girls too when we had COVID. My whole family had COVID at the same time. I finished it. He did not. I'm not sure where he stands with it at this point. It's a, it's Gilmore Girls is a hard one uh, because if you really overinvest in Rory, then you're going to be disappointed. I speak from personal experience. I was like a little overinvested in Rory in college. And then when she really goes off the rails in season five is when I had to tap out. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I connected. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say by overinvested in Rory. Anytime CJ's overinvested in a TV show, it means he's looking at fan fiction on the internet about it. <laughs> no, this was this was pre well, it was like in between the period when I was reading fan fiction and now when I've gone when I've returned to fan fiction. This was just like I was pinning my personality on becoming like Rory Gilmore. And well, let's look how that turned out. And maybe like we don't need to go too far down this road, but uh, since I've also watched some Gilmore Girls, like I, I have a conflicted relationship of like the first maybe like season and a half of being like, oh, Lorelai, look at that's the kind of parent I want to be. And then like towards the end, it's like, 
is this codependency? Because it, it becomes like real, like it becomes real weird. Um, I, and, and, I, and I also don't like to watch it too much because I start to relate a little too much to the grandparents uh, or to her parents, I should say. And it's just like, oh, this, that's not the look. However, shout out to Sebastian Bach, lead singer of Brian Bliss' favorite band from the uh, 80s, uh, Skid Row, uh, as, as the best character in the series. But anyway, we can go from there. There you go. I do have a question about fan fiction. CJ, which fan fiction are you into right now? Oh, it's like I am locked in on supernatural fan fiction. <laughs> it's it's embarrassing. I watched I watched that's the show that I watched when my whole family had COVID was Supernatural. Um, okay, so it was not. It rewired my brain in um, interesting and not good ways. Well, I I don't read much fan fiction, but I did start making up fan fiction about neighbors when the quarantine started. My husband and I would see, you know, people who lived near us that we'd never seen before because everyone's home and working from home and the gyms are closed. And, you know, there are people who are starting to run for the first time in 15 years and you can see the agony on their faces. And there are people who have um, calls while they're walking so they can get away from their family or whatever. And we would like make up stories about our neighbors and like what they do for work and what their names are. And, you know, the woman showed up with the dog for a while and then she left. So maybe she's a nurse in Chattanooga who comes down, you know, every other weekend. Um, so that's one, that's my only connection to fan fiction at this point, but it was pretty entertaining for a while. I love that. <laughs> well, and well, but that also kind of comes out of your, you are a writer, as you said, and you wrote a book. This is my, my attempt at a segue. You wrote a book <laughs> called The Great Belonging, which is about loneliness. And we have all spent so much time alone in the past year. Making up stories about your neighbors does seem like maybe a, an attempt to combat pandemic loneliness. But do you want to talk more about pandemic loneliness and how you've seen, how you've seen that manifest over the past year? Sure. Yeah, I will. Um, I'll talk about pandemic loneliness and pandemic belonging because there are some ways we belong that I think were strengthened during the pandemic, at least for some of us. So one way that I experienced pandemic loneliness was my loose tie relationships kind of disappeared. So that's, you know, my hairstylist, well, not disappear. I'm friends with my hairstylist, but you know, I wasn't getting my hair cut every eight weeks or whatever. So the people that we run into casually kind of throughout our ordinary lives, um, because we were all at home for so long, we didn't run into those people anymore. And um, there's plenty of research that shows even those sort of interactions, um, however brief and however surfacey, make us feel like we belong to, um, you know, the people around us. So that's one way I noticed it. Another way, I mean, just with everything that happened with regards to the pandemic and um, George Floyd's murder and the way some churches handled those things, I felt a lot of isolation with regards to like my church community. We pulled our membership in the middle of all that and just kind of started watching other church services online. And it just felt like that was something we needed to do. It's probably not the best time to do it. And maybe it was not a well thought through decision, but I'm glad we did it and I don't regret it. 
So I kind of lost some of those relationships. And I think I heard from a lot of people that the church community thing, not just the fact that we're not meeting every Sunday for worship and other, you know, in-person activities, but just noticing how the church, the white American church responded to some of this and noticing how friends who we go to church with respond to this and noticing how other people responded to all of this. I think a lot of people kind of saw the light in certain ways and saw the dark in certain ways and just kind of pulled back more than one would think when you just can't show up on Sundays. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, as somebody who's friends with you on various social media platforms, <laughs> one of my favorite things when all that was going on, and again, I'm, I'm looking at it from the outside, but it, if, you, if you had to have a moment of like, there are no more fucks being given, like that was when that started to happen in your comments, when you were just like, I don't want to hear from you white evangelical Christian men anymore. And like, just don't, don't, don't come in here and, and, and say it. And, and I think that that's, I think the thing when you start talking about people being like, seeing it in different ways, that there's a, there's a, uh, gradation, I guess, in like responses and how we act, like within within that. Like, I think it's easy to be outraged by what happened by the murder of George Floyd, but I think like actually being like, I'm not going to deal with this shit anymore in my comments or in my life and stuff like that. I don't think a lot of people. Well, I think there are some people that are easy to kind of just stay like, oh yeah, that's outrageous, but then not make any kind of fundamental changes to kind of call people out on that stuff. And and I saw that uh, in your kind of in you know you describing it now and how I experience is like, oh, this is somebody who is really, really just not going to have it anymore. And, and I appreciated that. And I think, you know, more white people need to kind of be in that space of just being able to be like, nope, you're not going to say that. And here's why uh, you're basically an idiot for doing so. So anyway, so kudos for yeah. that. It was, it was, it was fun to watch, <laughs> uh, but I can't, but again, I can't imagine it was necessarily fun to go through, but you know, on my side, it was just like, all right, there goes Charlotte. Let's go. Yeah. Well, I did embrace my role of being a disruptor in June, let's say. I've been a disruptor my whole life, but it kind of shut down after Trump was elected in 2016. And I tried to speak up about it and everyone um, attacked me for being divisive and not winsome and those sorts of things, which white Christian women in the deep South are supposed to be, even though they have hatred in their hearts. So I just kind of stopped talking, right? And I talked to close friends and, in you know, not in public spaces. I talked to friends who were, you know, writers who are people of color who have relationships with um, other friends who give a damn about people of color and those who are oppressed and those who are murdered by police. And then I, I don't know, like I have a strong fight or flight reaction when I'm under stress and, <laughs> You know, the quarantine was stressful and then another murder was stressful. And I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. Like, I'm not going to pretend to be like, pretend that, that this is okay or that maybe we're disappointed or disturbed. And then we move on to the next thing. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm done with it. And, you know, when a church has a um, portrait of a, pastor who was one of the recipients of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail and is just too worried about taking it down. I'm out, you know, I'm out. So, I mean, that was a long and rambling kind of response to you, but yeah, I embraced my disruptor role 
and that's part of who God made me to be. And like that made me a little more isolated. Um, not only during like in June moving forward, but probably for the rest of my life, but I'm okay with that. Like, um, it's fine. I mean, I think that relates to your book, which I have read. <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm the only one who, who's read it. Um, I read it. Brian read? Yeah, I read it. I think I got a free copy of it from Broadleaf actually, but because uh, I have connections. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I asked them to send it to you. Yeah. So anyway. Well, I, I paid full price. So. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my gosh. CJ's got to get that star in his crown. <laughs> no. I was, where, where is my free copy? That's my question. The free copy. That was, that, was a that was more of a you flex a, um, on my part. A friend who would appreciate it, I will send you one to give to a friend. No, it's okay. Sorry, we can cut that part out. That was no, me. No, no, we, you we gotta keep that. That's Don't going in. Producer. Yeah, that was a that was me trying to flex, and you're just being like, nope, no. <laughs> Bitch, I paid for it. <laughs> right, right. And the, the only thing could have made that better is so I'd been like, well, I'm now going to donate five copies to the first five people that comment on this podcast. So there you oh go. <laughs> first five f- free copies to the first five people who like and review. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. And then I'll be like, Broadleaf, can you hook me up with five? <laughs> Any, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe, All maybe right. Anyway. Okay, what have you done? <laughs> I'm not uh, taking the blame for this. No, but I do think that um, it relates to your book. In your book, you talk about um, how loneliness is not necessarily a bad thing or that it's not something that needs to be like just dealt with and pushed away, but that it's going to be a part of your life for for your whole life that it's just going to be a part of who you are when I I think that 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 part of your book I think troubled me a little bit because I was like I don't like feeling lonely and I would like to not do that for the rest of my life but in the context of like um, social justice work and living in the deep south and being maybe a, a disruptor in your community it makes me feel a little more hopeful that uh and that it's okay that there's going to be loneliness in that because there is a broader community that's maybe not uh, your neighbors, your your immediate neighbors. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I will say loneliness can be a very bad thing. You know, it's a form of suffering and suffering is hard and it can also be a red flag. Um, and I don't, I don't think I wrote much about this in the book. Like it can be a red flag that something's very wrong with a relationship or, um, your current circumstances that maybe you need to examine a little bit more and like shift out of, you know, into a new place if possible. But it can also um, be helpful in ways for me. The, um, and then again, I say everyone has their own definition of loneliness. We all experience it in different ways. I'm not one to put anything in a box and I don't like to be put in a box. <laughs> so for me, I feel... Um, lonely when I feel very different. So as a Christian woman in the deep South who has opinions and who thinks about things with nuance, it's different. At least in my communities, I've been living in the last, you know, four or five years. And I I mean, I hate to say that it's not very common, but it's not very common. Now there are pockets in Birmingham where there are people that I, you know, feel like I connect with a little bit more. Um, and that's, we lived in those communities for several years before we moved to a different area of town for a different school system. So our daughter could have the services she needs because 
public education in Birmingham messed up because of racism and white supremacy. So yeah, I feel different and, and that's okay. Um, it is hard to embrace, but it's also part of like a way for me to know myself and to belong to myself and also pay a little more attention to the other people that I belong to in ways that don't make me feel so different. So it, when I feel that loneliness and disconnection, it helps me think about, okay, who are, you know, I have like 20 to 25 people in Birmingham who I'm like on the same page with or on enough of a page next to it, but you know, like good enough. And who needs more than 25 people to hang out with? Like I can't hang out with 25 people over the course of a year unless someone has a party and no one's been having parties. So, but it's easy when we feel different and we feel like somewhat disconnected from the normal kind of like mentality that we're surrounded by to feel very, just to feel very lonely and like there's no place for us. And I also feel that way in the church because again, as a disruptor, someone who will speak up again about injustice or, you know, at a church we helped start in 2001 when the pastor was, having an affair with an elder's wife and I was speaking up about it. Like I was told I was being divisive and there was no proof. And maybe I was just jealous of her. And, <laughs> you know, that was a problem. And then what happened months later is they both left the church, got divorces and got married. So, you know, that pattern of speaking up in churches, and that's just one example as a woman, <laughs> And I was in evangelical churches at the time. They don't want to listen to me. And most women won't speak up because they know they don't want to be listened to or they don't ever form an opinion to speak up about. So that's another place where I've felt very different. And, um, but I'm not the only one. Like, I'm not going to say I'm so unique that I'm the only one in the South who speaks up about injustice or, you know, adultery. But, um, <laughs> There are others and, you know, we try to find each other and then we don't feel so alone in our loneliness. The, the big takeaway, I guess, from the book for me, one of them was there's a certain sense of like vulnerability with which that you kind of write. And I think that this, like when I went into the book, I didn't expect it. I, I expected it to feel more, not self-help, but I felt, more, I felt it more, if, like if I was going to write that, I would probably write it from a more... Um, arm's length position because I think when you start to engage that sense of loneliness like in yourself as a writer, I think it, it just might be too much. And so that's one of the things that I appreciated. And hearing you talk about this now, it strikes me that, you know, you, you're kind of unpacking loneliness as this thing of it almost becomes, uh, you're using the word disruptor. And I would, I would I would add on perhaps like prophetic, right? Like this idea of like when you do say something that kind of goes against the grain a little bit. Um, I don't know that we ever talk about those things as being paths to loneliness. I think we think about loneliness as, you know, in, in other ways where it's just like, I don't have, you know, the friends or I'm, I'm feeling, I am, I'm, you know, mentally not, not feeling well at the moment and stuff like this. And so I, I think this idea of, I, what I'm trying to say is like the vulnerability of you being able to say that, I think translates through the pages to kind of give other people that opportunity to be able to say, well, you know, I, I actually, I, I'm not as scared of this anymore. I'm not as scared of being alone. So I can kind of step forward and be that disruptor in in my own kind of space. And so that's the thing that kind of rings through. Uh, and, and I'm putting two and two together now that you're talking about it. But that vulnerability, I think, for me, was at the kind of core of, of, of the book. And I don't know if that was intentional or it just came through in the writing process, but that's something that I just wanted to lift up. 
Thanks. Yeah, I'm just pretty vulnerable and open about things. And so it comes through in my writing. And I don't want people to think, oh, the book's only about her being a disruptor and how she feels different because of that. I mean, I think sharing my experiences helps people who aren't necessarily disruptors, but they have different roles in making social change because there are several other roles that people can play. Um, and maybe they feel alone in that particular role or in that particular space. And hopefully seeing that someone else is open about the loneliness she feels will help others, excuse me, realize that they can not only be open about it, but just consider the ways they feel lonely. Because I think a lot of us walk around like denying that we feel lonely or thinking that loneliness means one certain thing. And if that's not how we experience it, then we're not lonely. And, you know, I disagree with that take. So yeah, the book isn't 10 ways to not be lonely anymore or 10 ways to belong to yourself, others, and God. That's not what it is. That's not how I write. It's not how I think. Um, yeah. This, however, would be a great time for you to like immediately pivot and, and pitch your spiritual direction practice. Like, but if you are feeling lonely and you want to... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm just still like trying to take in the reality that when you brought up allegations of, of a pastor having an affair. Someone responded, well, you're just, just jealous that the affair is not with you. I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand. So I was friends with the woman at the time and she was the kind of woman who everyone wanted to be friends with, right? And so some people were jealous of her. I don't know if I was ever jealous of her. And if I was, it wasn't because of that, you know? And it was just a very strange response to hear from someone. And then after it all blew up, you know, I don't think anyone came to me and was like, oh, you were right. You know, that's just not how it works. Dad, I ended up in an inpatient psychiatric facility with my first big manic episode. Yeah, that was weird. And you'd think I would have learned a lot through that, <laughs> through that whole process. And I did, but I wish I had learned a little bit more about the evangelical church and some of the various inner workings of the evangelical church. I mean, I, I do think that as uh, the, well, I never mind. I don't want to have a debate with CJ about whether or not Texas is the South, but because uh, I was about to say, is the only. I mean, we, can, uh, we can just set that aside and say, just say what you're going to say. I won't, I won't debate you. Well, I mean, yeah. So I, I think that there is something interesting about like, the way that Southern culture operates here to kind of create that loneliness, right? Then, in that, you know, if your understanding of a particular thing, say like uh, what it means to be a Christian, comes into conflict with the sort of culturally predominant understanding of what that is in the South, then it really requires you like to rupture your relationship to that thing because you will not find potentially not find like another place in which to engage in that that's any different. So, you know, some people have asked me before, like, where can I find, you know, uh, a welcoming and affirming church in, you know, East Tennessee for LGBT people, like around someplace like Lee University, one of the most intensely like conservative Christian places in probably America. And you're just like, I don't know where. <laughs> I don't think that exists because like the cultural predominance of Lee and Cleveland, Tennessee is like so strong that it's almost impossible to crack that kind of thing, you know? And and so I think that 
you know, I, I saw a study recently that said 70% of LGBT people in Tennessee identify as Christian. And, and what that means is that, you know, if they want to be actively a part of congregations, a lot of time they have to be like hiding who they are because there aren't alternatives out there, you know? So if you want to be... And so I, yeah, I think that just what's hitting me moving back to East Tennessee recently is that down here, if you cut against the cultural grain, then then you're going to... Yeah, you are going to find yourself in a place of intense loneliness. And I think that's why a lot of young people in the South who have fallen out with their family have to learn pretty quickly how to like choose their own kin and stuff like that. And And yeah, I think it's an interesting sort of cultural dynamic now, especially because at, on the other side of it, I think that a lot of churches, a lot of mainline churches anyway, are filled with boomers who are estranged from their kids and who, you know, never see their grandchildren or things like that. And and so, yeah, I, I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of conflict, especially inter-family conflict in the South that revolves around that exact thing, that, that the contested spaces when you speak up or when you show difference become social spaces and spaces of power. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I do want to say that when that sense of loneliness because of everything you just said that I've experienced in some ways and haven't experienced in other ways moved me toward trying to discover new ways to belong. And that's part of what the book is about too, is that um, if there's, you know, if I feel like I don't belong to the people around me, what are some ways that I can belong to myself more? What are some ways I can belong to God more? And for me, the two big ways that I've connect more um, is through art and through place. So connecting to my place, which I meant to say this when we're talking about the pandemic, because everyone was home, I think many people probably, whether they knew it or not, became more connected to their homes and their neighborhoods and the actual streets they were walking around in ways that probably eased some of the other loneliness that we could have experienced in the pandemic or that we did experience. And then um, also for me, it's hard to actually sometimes see the um, lines between art and faith in my life. Like sometimes poems are prayers for me because they put words around something I've never been able to put words around. Sometimes a song like the, you know, remembering a certain song from a certain season helps me feel like more of who I am. Um, and, you know, more of who I've, um, who I was created to be. Sometimes a painting can like show me really meaningful things about me and my faith. So I will always turn to art when I feel alone. And I don't, you know, I hope other people will too after reading the book or even hearing about it. And then the other thing I think that helps when we struggle with loneliness is to speak up about it. The more I read and write and talk about it, the less power it has over me. So that is one of my hopes is that more people will talk about the ways they struggle with loneliness and the ways that they experience more belonging. And, you know, if more people will have conversations about it and it's seen as something that's kind of typical that we all kind of deal with, there will be less shame. And I think it will decrease the amount of loneliness we feel. Yeah, that's so interesting what you said about connecting to place because it's not something I had really thought about before the pandemic. But now that I've been in rural Texas for 
I mean, almost a year. I started the pandemic in in Roanoke, Virginia, but then I moved back to, with my parents. And so it's like, I've seen like calf season twice now. So I got to like watch all the cows on the neighbor's farms have babies. My neighbor's donkey had a baby recently. That was a really exciting, that was a really, really exciting development in my life. And that would not have been anything that I had noticed before because I wouldn't have like spent as much time literally just like looking out my window. Like what, what like, the were you able, were you able to get up close and personal during that situation or was it from afar that you witnessed? I, this? I just thought that the donkey was fat. I just thought they had a fat donkey and then one day there was a baby. <laughs> That's pretty cool. gonna, CJ, it sounded like you were saying you just looked out your window and there was the donkey giving birth. And I was like, damn, Texas is real. No, I, I like, mean, no, but that neighbor's like across the road. So it's not directly outside my window, but it is genuinely something I wouldn't have noticed. I mean, I wouldn't have been living with my parents, but... It's not something I would have paid attention to if I was just like driving to work every day and coming back and not seeing the donkey outside on my walks and stuff. I mean, that sound, that's speaking of a good self-help book, See the Donkey. I mean, that, that, that just writes itself right there. You just get to... That sounds vaguely inappropriate. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think that the... I'm actually going to detransition and create, become like a Christian women's <laughs> self-help author. There you go. <laughs> Please don't do <laughs> I'm saying that's got to be one of the like cushiest griffs. I don't know. Just saying. Yeah, I'm going to be Rachel Hollis from uh, Zillennials. That's a whole conversation right there. No, that's... We, we, I don't think we need to have... I don't want to go there right now. (laughs) But I cut you off, Ryan. Sorry. No, I was just going to agree with both of you about the place thing. It's like I'm kind of notoriously... uh, all over the place, um, going and doing things and stuff like that. And so, I when when the you know pandemic started, and we talked about this somewhat um, with with another guest. But when the pandemic started, for me, like there was no kind of like transition to to like oh I got I feel like I'm crawling up the walls. It was like immediate sense of relief, right? Like this immediate sense of just like oh, I was like going way too hard, and so like I, I tie that into loneliness a little bit uh, because as far as like a healing factor, because like, I, I just don't want, want to say no to things. So I like doing lots and being in lots of different places and stuff like that. <clears throat> and so when you take that off of the table and the, the kind of the opportunity or the requirement just to kind of sit and be in one place at all the time, I'm dangerously close to like going Buddhist, but I'm not trying to, that's not where I'm going with this. But it's like the idea of like having just kind of be here, all of a sudden it takes away all that other pressure. And so that sense of like loneliness just becomes more, I don't know, you, you, you fill it up in different ways, I guess. Um, I, I might be stretching here a little bit, but I, I, I have felt that and I've actually been really, like in some way, I'm, I'm just interested, I guess, to see what returns when, you know, post-vaccination and when the world starts to get a little bit better, like how much of that stuff returns and how much of, you know, the, being the past year of kind of having that realization and being pretty happy over the past year, <laughs> happier than I've been in, the, in years, you know, previous, uh, to just like, what does that, how does that turn somebody that is very, very out, like extroverted? How does that kind of year of kind of just being like, I can't do any of that stuff. So I have to kind of sit here and be in this, this spot all the time. Like, what does that, how does that translate coming out of this? Um, so anyway, more of a, more of a, uh, a, a non sequitur than, than anything else. But um, I, I think that that's super important. I think a lot of people, I know being able to realize that in myself was really helpful and very interesting over the past year. 
So when you slowed down, did you notice more loneliness in your life that had kind of been covered up by busyness or things? Or did you know it was there the whole time and you just kind of had time to sit and breathe and sit with it and know that it was okay and that kind of thing? That's it. That's a what good, was that like? That was, that's a good spiritual direction question. Um, I, I've, I've, I felt like I've been in this spot before. No, I, I don't think I ever named, would have named it loneliness, honestly, before. Um, but it might have been like that idea of just trying to like reach out and trying to find meaning in, in as many different ways as possible. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like if you, for the Enneagram followers, this is like the, the high like uh, seven trait of like always trying to be out there gaining and doing and, and kind of uh, trying to increase meaning and, and impact or whatever. But, you know, so I, I don't know that I would call that. What I actually realized is that the thing that I missed was there was like, like you said before, like I had 30 some people, right, that I maybe know around in this area. But there's like three people where it's like, oh, I just miss being around them and getting to see them. And so like having to be intentional about reaching out to them and, you know, connecting with them and, and um, playing, you know, playing video games or whatever with those people rather than trying to kind of connect with everybody. Um, so I don't know if I would have ever, ever framed it as loneliness before because I don't, I, I never felt, I guess, lonely and it, it, it just never felt, I don't know, there might be something there about having just unpacked the idea of like loneliness as a bad thing, which, you know, might be what you're talking about as well. Um, whereas, you know, I, I imagine loneliness is kind of sitting around and being like, oh, I don't know what to do, where this was more peaceful than that. And so, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more spiritual direction question and we can move on. So what I hear you saying is that maybe through this, you felt a stronger sense of belonging to those three kind of closer people. And that might not have been possible if you hadn't been forced to slow down and really consider and be intentional about who you gave your time and energy to and who you spent time with. Yeah, that and then to uh, be super on the nose. Uh, also, it's like it made me realize how much, I, how much I miss going to church. I love going to church in my pajamas and just kind of sitting there with my camera off. Like that's actually pretty awesome. But um, I, 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 it also made me miss that, right? It's like I, I do think that yeah, belonging of trying to belong in a bunch of different ways and kind of always feeling maybe not necessarily connected because you're just half in or whatever. Like, I think that uh, intentionality of saying, well, these are the places where I do want to put my energy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Loneliness and belonging. It seems like somebody should write a book about that because it, it, that, that really does uh, kind of, it, it gets right to the point of what, of what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have any spiritual direction questions they want to ask Charlotte? <laughs> um, I'm interested in how you uh, became a spiritual director. Like what interested you in that? And also uh, what is spiritual direction for people who may not know? Yeah. Well, spiritual direction is not a regulated industry, which is probably one reason I like it. Like we all have our own definitions of it. We all, you know, there are different types of training programs. So I am a Christian spiritual director who believes in the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. So I meet primarily with people who are Christians or who think they might be or used to be and don't know what to do now or even one person who knew they weren't, but still wanted to explore a faith kind of life, what that meant for them. So as a spiritual director, I sit with people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, there's also group spiritual direction, but I don't practice that right now. And make space for my clients to um, give their attention to how God has been at work in their lives and in the world around them. 
I had a spiritual director, um, or I first started seeing a spiritual director about 10 years ago. My therapist at the time kicked me out of her office and said, I have clients who need me more than you. You're fine now. Um, get another therapist who can kind of do new things with you and get a spiritual director. And I mean, she was a lot nicer about all that. Um, <laughs> it was very kind. And it, you know, she meant it as a good thing. Like you've grown so much. Here are new things to try. Um, so I started meeting with someone at that point and she lived in California. Maybe. So I've met with my spiritual directors online from the beginning and now my spiritual director is in New England, Connecticut, I think. And um, all of my clients I've met with online. One client lives in Birmingham and we met outside once during the pandemic. But um, yeah, I sit, you know, I start every session with a prayer from St. Ignatius and I um, invite them to share ways that they've seen God at work or to raise a question where, or describe a situation where God seems absent. I pray while my clients are talking. So I have questions sometimes that may or may not come from the Holy Spirit. Clients often have kind of aha moments during our sessions. And it's not magic, you know, I think if any one person were to sit down for an hour and someone will listen to them talk about God, good things would happen, right? So people pay me to do that for them because we don't do that for each other. Um, typically, um, in this way. So where like, I'm not sharing anything about me. I'm giving all of my attention to you and, and praying and wanting to listen and discern, um, what, what and how God is, you know, active in your life or in my clients' lives. And I don't offer solutions or answer questions or tell them what to do. I may know some of those things or have a good idea of what those things might be, but it's between God and my clients and, and I might be wrong, you know, I don't want to tell them to do something or answer some question or solve some problem and not be right about it. So does that help? Does that give you an understanding a little bit of what spiritual direction is? Yeah. So uh, I guess just like what, what interested you in that? Cause it sounds it sounds like a form of ministry or something that I think could fall under, under like clergy responsibilities, but it seems really separate. So how did you end up there? Well, some clergy do spiritual direction. I loved meeting with my spiritual director and it was like, you know, it was as a deeply spiritual person surrounded by people who, some who are deeply spiritual, some who aren't. And just wanting to have those conversations and um, sit for an hour and think about what God's up to. Like, I loved those sessions. Like, typically you meet once a month with your spiritual director and um, every session was wonderful. Some, not much happened. And, you know, there can be some silence, which is also helpful for all of us to sit in silence for a while. Um, and I'd say probably about five years in, I, I thought, you know, I think I want to do this. And my spiritual director who I have now, she asked me a few questions about um, 
like how I talk to my friends or my family and how I interact with people. And she's like, well, you're kind of already doing it. So it might make sense for you to get certified if you want to. And I just began to research different certification programs and I ended up going to one in Nashville because the director is also a psychologist. So we had a lot of conversations about what's therapy and what's spiritual direction and when to suggest that a client might need therapy if they're not seeing a therapist. And one way I explain that is, let's say you have a fight with a coworker and there's just tension there and it's terrible and you hate going to work every day. Back when we went to work every day. A therapist would approach it as, okay, like relational things, like how can you learn to interact? Like what are some tools where you can interact with this difficult person? And maybe how are you contributing to the dynamic? And I would say like some questions I would ask would be like, well, what is God showing you through this situation? What are what is God showing you about yourself? Do you notice God's presence in this situation? If so, how? Do you see the difference? Like it's it's like directing our attention to God's presence in that situation instead of like the tools I need to to make it better, which we need tools to make things better, but it's just it's a different it's a different thing. The uh, one of the best things about the diocese that I'm in, in Minnesota is, uh, for the ordination process at least, is that they require um, all ordinands to be uh, in spiritual direction and therapy. And up until that point, the therapy I didn't have a problem with. Spiritual direction, I always kind of had this image of like somebody with lots of scarves, um, <laughs> you know, as, as kind of, and, and Stevie Nicks. Yeah, very Stevie Nicks vibe, uh, vaguely UU perhaps. And, and so I was always just like, mm, I, I don't know. But like, it's been like legit over the last year and a half, one of the most important things in my life. And I, I finally have found the right person as well. And, you know, I've had, I like, I, I don't, I feel like I don't have realizations the way other people do. A lot of times it takes me forever. But I, I had one in my last meeting where it was just like, or my, yeah, was just like oh, I'm work- I, I don't need to work this much. Like I, I said those words. And as soon as I said, it, I was like, oh, shit, I don't need to work this much. And then I quit my job. Um, so shout out to spiritual direction. And, and I don't know, my wife might disagree with this. But, you know, <laughs> but it's like today is my actual like last day of that day job. And it was, I, I, I'm just trying to affirm the fact that sometimes like just having to say the stuff, like for somebody like for somebody that talks a lot anyway, like having to have like somebody that directs you into a, maybe a direction or like kind of like shepherds you in a certain area that maybe you might not go to, it, it can be super powerful. And and so I, I've gotten like completely off of like doing it for like ordination purposes. Now it's just like this thing that's like, oh, I need this as a part of my own spiritual life. So it's it's been really, really wonderful. Yeah. That's great. So did you have to meet with a few different people to find one that was a good fit? Yeah, the first two I met with, like I knew pretty much halfway through the first session. It's like, oh, this is not going to work. Um, uh, but then I found somebody, um, this is like random kind of like radical activist guy who also does spiritual direction. And so he and I are kind of connect on a lot of different, uh, very specific things. But he knows, also knows that I could sit there and talk with him for an hour, but he kind of will not let me do that. He kind of is constantly making me be the one talk. So yeah, anyway. Uh, but yeah, so it, it took some time. And I think that I think that's normal, right? Like it's normal to find the yeah. fit. Like I, I also am like maybe too polite. So my big fear with starting out a lot of times was like, oh God, what if I have to tell this person I don't want to like, should I just ghost them or do I email them? Like, how do you, how do you break up with somebody that you've only met once over Zoom? <laughs> 
Yeah, people do. People break up all kinds of ways. I'll say that. I've only had, for me, it was more like you have the first conversation about what would it be like? What would it look like? What do you want to get out of spiritual direction? And then um, the next step is for them to contact me and let me know some dates and times that work for them. And they never do that. And maybe it's because they didn't like me or maybe they decided whether this is too much vulnerability for me. And I don't know if I want to do that right now or a mixture of both. So, yeah. But the sooner you tell a spiritual director that it's not working and make up an excuse even of why you can't do it anymore, the better, you know. Can I say it just isn't good for, you know, we, our finances are tight now. Um, There you go. And then your finances automatically have room for monthly spiritual direction a month later. Well, but see, I tried to do that with the first one. He's like, well, I have a sliding scale. I was like, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Come on, man. <laughs> you didn't take the hint. He did not take the hint. No, he was super. And here's the really funny part. Um, he's a super nice guy. And then like in our in our diocese, we have to have um, what do you call it? Like we we create these portfolios for ordination, and then we get p- paired with with a, with a clergy member who is experienced. And guess who my first pairing was? It was that guy. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> come on. Anyway, super nice guy. Oh, wow. Just did not not the connection. So. Yeah, <laughs> but as if like you're sitting there looking pensive, do you have do you have a thought? Uh, no, not really. I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just uh, a total role reversal here too. Well, so. we are uh, we're coming up on an hour here, and I know that Charlotte is excited about the fight corner. Um, <laughs> yes. So I, unless you have a candidate, I have someone that I can put in the fight corner as well. I have a candidate or two or three that have come to mind while we've been talking, but I will let you pick the person. Oh, okay. Well, well, Isaac actually brought this up earlier, and I think he's worthy of the fight corner, but Bishop Love, formerly of the Episcopal Diocese of Albany, welcome to the Chili's parking lot. I thought you were about to put me in the fight corner. I I Isaac, you haven't talked enough in this podcast. Welcome to the fight corner. That's the last episode. It's the last episode we ever do. I put Isaac in the fight corner, except it's an actual fight. I drive to East Tennessee. Put me in the fight corner for making you podcast for years. Yeah, that's that's how you'll know that we're we're truly truly done with the pod. No, but um, Bishop Albany, the Bishop of Albany, sorry, Isaac, you're once again outnumbered by Episcopalians here. But uh, the Bishop of Albany uh, was first, he was last October brought up on Title IV charges, which in the Episcopal Church, that's like how you discipline anybody. I don't really know how it works in the Methodist Church. Do they discipline people? Who knows? (laughs) It's not clear. But uh, he was brought up on Title IV charges and convicted, which doesn't happen super often. And he was basically convicted of like not fulfilling the role of his office because um, he was refusing to ordain or marry LGBT people in his diocese, uh, despite the Episcopal Church's general convention ruling that um, LGBT people should be ordained and married. But the reason he's in the fight corner this week is because he like just announced that he's leaving the Episcopal Church to join ACNA, which we all called. Isaac, did you call it? Uh, no, I was just saying it's always uh, it's always satisfying when someone decides to show you exactly who they are. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't 
don't know a single person who is surprised by this development, but the reason that he's in the fight corner for me is that he was brought up and convicted on charges in October. He then took a long sabbatical and then didn't resign until the beginning of February and then didn't say that he was leaving to go to ACNA until, I don't know, today is like literally the last day of March. Uh, which is just like an, a, a clear ploy to like make sure that his pension is like fully vested before he leaves. It's like such a cash grab. And that's also clear. That's like why he stayed as Bishop of Albany for as long as he did before going to Agnes because he just wanted the pension. Like he wanted the money that the Episcopal Church could give him before he left to go to a church that doesn't have as many resources because they're a bunch of schismatic homophobes. And it's like, I don't think you deserve to get all of our money if you're like going to be convicted of like not loving members of the Episcopal Church. I mean, that's like what it was. So welcome to the fight corner, Bishop of Albany. (laughs) Bishop Love, please meet me in the Chili's parking lot. I have friends in Albany. I can stay with them. I will meet you at your hometown, Chili's. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Road tour, fight corner. <laughs> I'm telling you, the Chili's tour, the live podcast, when we're, we're through this, this is it. Yeah, and also Methodists ha- do have a connection here. I mean, the, a lot of the, the schismatic movements of Methodists is trying to figure out how can we keep our property? How can we, how can we retain our, our, our uh, pensions? Uh, can, we, can we take uh, Cokesbury with us? Uh, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, no, it's just easier to kick all the, uh, the leftists out. Yeah, anyway, it's... it's and he, did he get defrocked? Like, I think he actually lost his ordination as a part of that, too. I'm not mistaken. Yes. As part of leaving, he, he officially resigned his orders. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, yeah. So anyway. took the money with him. Yeah. I, it's like, once you've worked, like, they give you the money. Yeah, I get that so, 30 yeah, years in, yeah. It's like a retroactive defrock. I mean, that is... That does open the, the that there's a question there of like, if you have been a homophobe for 29 years and seven months, like, can you or should you wait those five months to get fully vested? Yeah, it, it's a, it, it does bring up quandaries uh, for those uh, thinking about it. So, hmm. but yeah, him going to ACNA. And also we should, we should mention ACNA, right? But it's not about homosexuality, right? ACNA is not about homosexuality. Isn't that what you hear all the time on Twitter? That, that's not why people join. That's not why I stay in ACNA. It's not because of homosexuality. Well, why is it then? I, it's just not about homosexuality, guys. That's all, that's all we need to let you know about. Don't worry about it. This is, okay. Here's my latest book me, by Brian. Tish Warren. Wait, no, what? I'm, I'm triggered now because oh, no. <laughs> this is one of my uh, least favorite bullshit things on social media recently. Like, I got in an argument, not even really an argument, but just like a back and forth about something yesterday. And, and someone was like, oh, like... You you know you're saying something that I don't believe, and I was like, okay, that that may not be something you claim, but also it's implicitly a part of the position that you hold. So it's like, it you know you don't have to. I mean, and we see this all the time, especially in the South, like when they were defending that shithead cop in Atlanta who was like empathizing in a press conference with the guy who killed eight Asian women. He was like, like why would the first of all, no one asked that dude to like do a psychological report on the mass shooter. Like he just started pontificating on like, man, he must have had a really bad day. Like no one needs this. But then secondly, when people are like, yeah, this is racist. I saw so many people in Tennessee on social media being like, well, he, he of course he's not racist. This is just an attack. And like, he's being attacked for being a good man. And it's like people in the South will only 
accept that someone's racist if they say I'm racist. But it's like <laughs> that's actually not how it works. And I feel like the same thing is true for every conservative Christian who joins ACNA or the Global Methodist Church, whatever else. It's not really about it's not about sexuality for me. It's about scripture. Like, no, I'm sorry, but if you join those things, you're a homophobe. Yes, you're a homophobe. Is. And if you publish books and try to hide it and still try to maintain your popularity uh, by by kind of constantly obfuscating the, uh, the the what you actually believe about homosexuality, you are still a homophobe. There you go. No names needed. <laughs> I wish everybody could see the face you just made, but I, I think this gets back to something that Charlie was saying ultimately, and then I'm gonna like shut the fuck up. But <laughs> it's just like actions are not enough for people when they want to deny something like unless someone says like hey everybody i'm the most vile <laughs> evil person in the world and everything that like is bad about me is 100% true people would be like well they didn't say that that's what they think yes. it's like, it doesn't matter this, okay, I'm done. This literally happened to me speaking of Facebook and neighborhood pages. This literally happened to me today where somebody was like, somebody's like, somebody posted a picture of like people like exercising six feet apart. And it's like, hey, remember this is not over until Fauci says it's over. It was obviously a tongue in cheek comment. And all of these people on this thing were like, like, well, let's Fauci know. He he doesn't know anything and he's flip-flop this, this. And then there was like definitions of science from people that have obviously never taken a science class, all this stuff happening. And my thing is just like, why are we I was like, this is I like I'm officially dumber for reading all of these comments. And somebody's like, why? Because you you believe in the church of Fauci? And it's like, no, it's because I'm trying to read for like the, the 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 intent of this post, not the semantics. It's just like, anyway, whatever. Now I'm triggered. We should probably really get off if if I if I'm gonna start going off on this stuff. It's just like you all just it's like it's it's so it's just so transparent, right? And like, I, I get so enraged by it. It's just like, I don't even know how to like argue against because it it's just so stupid. It's like, if you're this stupid to type this, I can't break through. I'm sorry. Uh, it just go with God. <laughs> you're just jealous that Bishop Love wouldn't deny your marriage. Well, there it is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I need to call my spiritual director now. He's like, I got all this rage. Like I got to work through. <laughs> or, or, or would that be my counselor? Like my therapist? It's one of those two. I'll, I'll figure it out. Maybe <laughs> Charlotte's like, why did I say that I wanted to do, to do a fight corner? <laughs> no. I will. I have one thing to add about this conversation is that when I realized, and no offense to those of you who are in uh, ministry, when I realized that like most church leaders, it, like it's a job, right? Like certain pastors I've had in the past might've known certain things were unjust and um, that they should have preached more clearly about racism and voting for certain people, but they need the tithes from the people who are coming to the churches and yada, yada, yada. So like, why would they do that to themselves? And maybe that's for another episode. But like once I made that connection, I was like, oh, well, they're just trying to keep their jobs just like everybody else. Not that that's a pass. It just, it's like, well, this is humanity. And, you know, surely there are some pastors and priests and whatnot out there somewhere who aren't in Birmingham, Alabama, who actually do the right thing and say the right thing, even if it means some people might leave the church and take their money with them. No, I mean, I think that totally relates to the Bishop Love thing, which is part of what pisses me off about it <laughs> is that like the Episcopal Church, I will speak for them only because I know about it, but it's just like it, it functions so much like, like a company, like a business that people are making 
people are making decisions based on like the horrors of capitalism in the US, which I cannot hold against like people who are like rectors of tiny churches in the middle of nowhere that need to like feed themselves. But like, if you're letting bishops make decisions uh, as if they're like CEOs of companies who just like need to spend enough time to like make sure that they get their pension, then it's like, this isn't the ministry that, uh, (laughs) this isn't the ministry that we act like we're doing. Mm. Well, it makes him look like, like a hypocritic fool, right? Like, you're trying to like you quote want to do what is true to your soul or your faith or whatever and like but you're really making it about money at least on your way out so who are you i hear those uh episcopal pension plans are pretty sweet they are you gotta get that 30 (laughs) years in though that's why i'm trying to get ordained as fast as possible Uh, like time is already running out i gotta get this covid shot and then get on that 30-year plan uh (laughs) (laughs) maybe y'all do deserve your pensions you know like i don't know if you served the time yeah you get the dime well but i think i would like for the church to function so that like people can can make decisions yes based on their personal convictions rather than what they need to do to like have food and housing and if his personal convictions were such but he truly believed that the Episcopal Church was like completely off base, right? Like completely outside of biblical teaching. And he could no longer be in ministry there. He knew that years ago. You know, we need to like like a fucking decade ago and he should have left. And mm-hmm. uh, so it just like, to me, it's like so transparent. And I wish that the church functioned such that he could just like be open about why he's really making these decisions instead of, cloaking it and like and like blaming the gays for like why he had to stay and fight or whatever and now he's going to go to act now that he's got nothing left to lose anyway this has been an extended fight corner yeah well i think the last thing i'll say about this i think it'll be interesting to see how he's received like what sort of public fanfare he's received with uh by acna people um i i don't know It'll, it'll just be interesting to see how he resurfaces in that world so anyway I accidentally got on a Twitter thread with people like an acne Twitter thread. Oh, oh, oh no. no. And it was somewhat <laughs> horrifying. I mean, I was like, Classic who do blunder. I need to unfollow and block to like never let this happen to me ever again? <laughs> I think someone retweeted something and then, you know, you get interested and you want to know what the drama is all about. And yeah, it was bad. Don't do it. Oh, I mean, like, I've got most of acne blocked, I think. <laughs> but Bishop Sumner, Diocese of Dallas, you're next. Get on out of here. Scurry on over to Acna. How much time does he have left? Also, this is not a fight corner. This is just like as a side note before we close. The Diocese of Fort Worth has officially renamed as the Episcopal Church in North Texas, which is such a fuck you. I love it so much. Huge fan. You're doing a great job. Episcopal Church in North Texas. Wow. Well, I mean, all of my takes have been revealed. Charlotte, do you have anything you want to plug before we finish? No, I mean, I'm tired of plugging myself. Um, <laughs> we'll put it in- if you want to read my book, buy it. We'll put there it in the show notes. There are great books out there too. Buy books. How about that? Buy more books. Read more books. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, Thanks coming, for coming on, Charlotte. On.